Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 19 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajima, aka WMD Girl. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. As a patron, you'll be able to submit questions to the show and get access to tip sheets on nuclear weapons issues. This week, I'm plugging a few of my favorite things. Uh, The headline for this week is Empowering Girls in National Security by Lauren Buta on June 27 in War on the Rocks. So War on the Rocks is one of my favorite blogs. If you're interested in defense issues, I highly recommend you take a look. So Lauren is writing about um, basically, uh, her new nonprofit that she started up in 2016 called Girl Security. Uh, her aim is to empower girls from kindergarten through the 12th grade across the United States on national security. So I want to make a point. This is my personal view, um, and it's something that I've said a lot in the last year. Having more women in national security leadership positions is not about equity. It's about national security. And I have spent 20 years in national security as a woman, and I found that there tends to be a certain amount of groupthink that occurs as a result of similar types of people um, dominating the discourse. I believe that when you allow different types of people to engage in the discourse, that you are able to see complex problems from all possible angles. That requires diverse perspectives, and one way we can do that is by um, having more women in leadership positions. And I am very passionate about this issue. And so is Lauren, and that's why girl security is one of my favorite things. So at the start of her mission, Lauren has been focused on delivering an important message. First of all, national security matters for women. And as I mentioned, um, or implied in what I said before, um, there is, women are underrepresented in national security leadership positions, and it's it's severe. Um, I don't know the exact data, but it's less than 20%. Um, it's probably in the teens somewhere. And actually what's interesting to me personally is that it hasn't changed much in 20 years. In fact, in recent years, it's actually gotten even worse. Um, and this is really, this is really disheartening um, because a lot of women are extremely talented and when national security cannot leverage their talent, we are missing out as a country. Um, Lauren said that she started this initiative because she perceived a demand. She's heard from girls saying, I wish I'd been trained in the skills before I went to college. I, I wonder how my career might be different if I had a head start in high school. In fact, she says that for every 20 to 25 students who participate in the program, about two to four have a specific interest in serving in national security. And that can just be, that can be as military officers, intelligence analysts, lawyers, journalists, even artists. 
So what is girls security doing about it? Well, they are developing and employing a specialized curriculum um, for kindergarten through um, grade 12 classrooms designed by women in the field. They're also building a mentor of a uh, network of women who represent various industries and fields in foreign policy and international security to engage with younger women. Um, they're conducting simulations designed by women in the field, informed by real life experience in national security. And they're offering intensive training programs on specific national security skills um, to give girls kind of advanced learning and early stage. In fact, they are hosting, Girl Security is hosting their first wargaming, wargaming workshop with girls um, with RAND Corporation in July 2019. Very, very exciting. They're also partnering with girls organization called, um, such as Girl Scouts, and they have developed the first national security patch program, Secure You, Secure America. This is so important. I'm so excited. This is one of my favorite things. Okay, um, let's get to the interview with a special lady who has a storied career in national security. This week, I'm talking to retired FBI Special Agent Jerry Williams. In addition to a 26-year career with the FBI, she is the host of the FBI Retired Case File Review. This is a true crime and history podcast where she interviews retired FBI agents about their high-profile cases and careers, so tune in if you write about those issues. She's also a fiction writer and has just released her first nonfiction book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, and I am an armchair detective, so let's get to the interview. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Instruction podcast. Today I'm with Jerry Williams. She's a retired FBI agent, podcast host, fiction writer, and soon-to-be published nonfiction writer. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you. It's, I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure. So let's start off talking a little bit about your FBI career. You served, I think, 26 years as a special agent specializing in economic fraud investigations and corruption in Philadelphia. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through, you know, your decision to become an agent, your training. I assume that took place at Quantico. Why don't you start there? Yes, I was a psychology major in college. And of course, after I graduated, I was looking for a position where I could use my, my education. And I found a job as a juvenile probation officer, which they actually called aftercare counselor because I traveled around the state of Virginia uh, to different uh, halfway houses and group homes and uh, correctional facilities where the juveniles that were on my caseload were. And then when they came back to the community, I helped to you know, assimilate them back into school and work and their families. So I did that. Um, and then I saw a newsletter that said that the FBI was looking for more women and more minorities. And it was like, check, check. As an African-American woman, uh, I hadn't really thought about joining the FBI, but when I called the recruiter, he really, really sold me and showed me how my skill sets really fit well with the FBI. And six months later, I was walking into the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Wow. So what was Quantico like? What can you tell us about training? How long does it take? What does it all entail? When I started, long, long time ago. <laughs> it was 16 weeks of training, but now it's actually 21 uh, because they've expanded the terrorism uh, modules. 
but uh, but basically it's still the same thing. You know, uh, three aspects of it: the academics, where you're learning everything about FBI violations, you're learning how to interview, you're learning all about the legal procedures and protocols, and so that's the academic portion. Then there are the uh, then there's the firearms, where you're trained and uh the the pistol and the rifle and you get familiar familiarity with the shotgun and then the third aspect of course is the physical fitness and that's when you're running and push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and, and and all of that to make sure that you're in, in the best really physical fitness uh that you'll ever ever be in your entire life i i, I wish i had that body <laughs> <laughs> um but it really creates a, a mindset and really gets you into the culture of being an agent because the, the main thing that you learn is that when you join the FBI and you, and you get out of the academy, I mean, you've got to be ready to hit the ground running. There is no, I mean, there's a training agent and you're on probation, but many agents, when they get to their first office, there's actually cases waiting for them on their desk. And they expect you to be able to open those cases and to begin investigations. Wow, that is really hitting the ground running. So was your first appointment then in Philadelphia or where, where did you start? No, I actually, I was living in Hampton, Virginia. I'm an Air Force brat. My father had retired in, at Langley Air Force Base in, in Hampton, Virginia. So I had been living there uh, after I came back home from college. And so my first six months were in the Norfolk Division office, uh, which is uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And then I was transferred all the way across the country. And I worked for a year and a half in Sacramento. Oh, wow. And then after a year and a half, they transferred me all the way back to Philadelphia, where I spent the rest of my career. So 24 years of the 26 years I was in the FBI, I spent in the Philadelphia Division. And, you know, you, did you have some first cases on your desk? Were they immediately economic fraud investigations and corruption? Or did you kind of get into that later in your career? Now, some of the, when I got to, when I was in Norfolk for the first six months, I worked mainly bank robberies. And Ooh. yeah, well, bank robberies and applicant matters are what traditionally new agents work because they're quick and easy investigations. You really get to learn the territory of the office that you're assigned. And so that's what I did. When I got to Sacramento, I was put on a government fraud, uh, squ a squad that handled government fraud. So I, yeah, I started working fraud from really the very beginning. When I got to Philly, again, I was on a government fraud squad. I later, uh, within a year or so, transferred to an economic crime squad, which is still fraud. And that really became my, my expertise. How much of the job, so in the in TV, in the movies, we see FBI agents pretty much on the street most of the time, running around, chasing the bad guys, doing interviews, things like that. How much of your daily life is spent on the street doing that sort of thing versus in the office? Because I imagine fraud, there's a lot of kind of informational investigation that goes on. Yeah, for, for every agent, you know, at least half of your time is outside the office. I would say for most agents, though, it's about 75% of your time is out of the office. Matter of fact, if you're hanging around the office too much, uh, the bosses assume that you're not working. And <laughs> 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 what are you doing here? Because 
Now, even for fraud investigations, uh, communicating, gathering evidence, interviewing people is really one of our primary goals. And you can't do that sitting in the office. So a lot of the uh, time that you're working is outside, meeting with people, gathering evidence, gathering records, and um, you know, just getting the work done. Okay, great. Well, so that's a great introduction, and you are a podcast host of the FBI Retired Case File Review. This is a true crime and history podcast. You've been doing this for three years. What led you to start the podcast, and what what are you? What is the podcast? Like, what do you do each week? All right. Well, I can tell you that I started the podcast really as a way to build a platform to get readers for my book. I, I didn't have a book at the time, but I knew that I wanted to you know, get my name out there. And so about eight to nine months before the book came out, I started uh, building this platform. And a lot of times, when authors are trying to build a platform, at least it used to be, that they would blog. But I wanted to spend my writing time writing books. And so I was listening to podcasts and I thought, yeah, I could do a podcast. Um, actually, when the FBI had their 100th anniversary in 2008, I had actually done, at that time, I was the spokesperson for the Philadelphia office. I was what they call the media coordinator. I handled all of the offices, interactions with uh, you know, reporters and journalists and producers and authors and anybody who had any questions about the FBI I did that for the last five years. And so I had already done some video, some interviewing of agents in order to promote the 100th anniversary. So I was already kind of skilled in that. I, I, I had that, uh, uh, that experience. And so I decided if I'm gonna do a podcast, I'm going to interview retired agents. And right now I interviewed them about some of the FBI's biggest cases and some cases that people have never ever, never ever heard of, but are just absolutely fascinating. And so I've done uh, this week, I posted my 165th episode. Wow, and, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. What I like to say is that I am now on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast, Case Reviews with Former Colleagues. So pretty much if authors want to learn about the FBI and how you conduct various cases, they can listen to your podcast. Oh, absolutely. And, the, and that's the purpose. I mean, the purpose is to give everyone the truth about what we do and how we do it. I mean, there's a lot of great books and TV shows and movies out there, but you know, they can get it wrong. And even when they don't get it wrong, because of time constraints, they don't have the time to tell you exactly how things are done. And, and you know, they always say, if you're gonna break the rules, you really kind of need to know what the rules are. Um, and, and so I don't expect everyone to write an investigation or to, you know, to craft a story about a case exactly how the FBI does it, because that could be very boring. <laughs> but I, I would le at least hope that you'd have an idea how things are done so it, it's not wi wildly, you know, out of sync to how things are really done. So yeah, uh, definitely writers and authors 
who are looking to do you know a crime drama about the FBI uh, these podcast episodes are I have to say so myself you know just gold and and learning how things are actually done and so you started this podcast as a platform for your fiction career and you have two novels um why don't you tell us a little bit about your novels Yes, where both of them are inspired by actual FBI cases. The, the first book is called Pay to Play, and there were two female agents, and we call them female agents, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, why is she using the word female? But women that were agents <laughs> in the Philadelphia office that uh, were working this case involving strip clubs. They were going after a corrupt uh, Philadelphia official who was, you know, just getting all kinds of uh, free things from strip clubs, including drinks, food, and sex, lots of sex. And it was just amazing watching these two very attractive women go in and out of strip clubs and, you know, tell their story about all the crazy things that were happening. And I said to them one day, I've always wanted to write a book, and this would make a great, great case uh, to write about. And you know, would you, are you guys interested in writing a book? And they said, no way. <laughs> and so uh, they actually helped me. They, we sat down uh, several times and they gave me some of their materials that they had. And um, I wrote the book. So my first book, Pay to Play, is about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. And it is something that people were shocked that I wrote because it's uh, full of, uh, you know, uh-oh. Uh yeah, it's, it's full of <laughs> sex scenes and uh, profanity and violence and, uh, but. That's the real world, people. That's the real world. And I kept <laughs> it real. <laughs> I kept it real. It took me five or six um, years to write. And I'm really proud of that book because I did something that a lot of new writers don't do. I actually worked with the developmental coach the entire time I wrote that novel. Well, let me just say it. I wrote the first draft and I handed it to a friend of mine who was a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he sat down with me and gave me the bad news that it sucked. Oh, <laughs> you know, he told me that it was dry, was too many FBI acronyms that they're, you know, you said you're writing about sex, uh, you're writing about strip clubs, there's not enough sex in it. You know, I was using, they, they were involved in a sex act and he said, no, they are, beep, beep. You know, uh, I don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure this is a, a clean podcast. I won't say the word, but, you know, he really let me know that if you're gonna write about a strip club, you know, you gotta put it out there. And so that's what I did. And so that book is has done very well. Um, it's it's on Amazon now, but by the end of June, it will be everywhere. It's also an audio book. Uh, it's got a 4.7 rating and 80 uh, reviews on Amazon. So I'm really proud of that. And I'm really proud of the way that my podcast listeners have received uh, that book. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. The second one is called Greedy Givers. And it was actually inspired by a case that I worked on. Uh, one of the biggest, largest charity Ponzi schemes in the country at the time, the target uh, actually stole uh, $350 million 
from victims all around the world. And I took that book and I fictionalized it, totally fictional, fictionalized it, but it was my way of trying to figure out why this guy who had been very uh, active in the nonprofit community that was very active in anti-drug programs, why he did this con, why he scammed these people. And so in writing that book, I was able to at least give myself some uh, possible answers as to, to why he did it. So it's definitely a, a why, why did it instead of a who done it. Okay. Well, great. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is, you know, it's for authors, mass destruction. And the FBI plays a special role in cases involving weapons of mass destruction. So I was wondering if you could you know, talk a little bit about um, WMD at the FBI and how, how that works. And then I know that there's a few episodes that you've covered on your podcast that involve WMD related issues. And we can talk through those once, once you kind of, kind of give the lay of the land for us. Yeah, so everybody hears when our, our, our number of people are aware that the FBI has bomb techs that go out and, you know, do uh, post-blast investigations. But I don't think they're aware that every FBI office has a weapons of mass destruction coordinator whose uh, primary function is to coordinate the assessment of and, and response to incidents uh, that are involving the use of, say, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear materials. And uh, so this person is, you know, is there in the office uh, working with other organizations and agencies that, you know, may hear or, or learn about people who are, you know, dealing and talking and having you know, discussions about, you know, weapons of, mass de weapons of mass destruction. I should go ahead and use the WMD so I don't have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so these coordinators are, are tasked with establishing, you know, that appropriate liaison, you know, with regional, state, and, and local emergency response personnel. Um, and, and as I mentioned also, with those critical facilities uh, within the FBI, that um, you know can help us facilitate notification and response to WMD incidents. So um, you know it's it's a it's a very important job. Uh, hopefully they're not kept too busy because that's scary. But uh, that definitely is a position and one of the jurisdictions of the FBI. So I work at the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction at National Defense University, and sometimes we get some weird phone calls. And one phone call in particular I received um, oh, probably four or five years ago, coming from New York City, someone was calling me. I think she was the owner of a restaurant or some sort of winery. They had a wine collection, and I guess there was some sort of um, she fearful of some sort of uh, radiological substance being in one of the wines and calling me and asking me what to do. And I said, well, I'd recommend you call the FBI. <laughs> and she's like, oh, the FBI is already here. I'm like, then you are in good hands. <laughs> There's nothing that I'm going to help you with except for maybe have some, you know, profound thoughts about it. Um, but, but 
with the FBI is, is the agency that handles WMD uh, in, in domestically when there's an issue that comes up. So I noticed that you have a couple of episodes involving a nuclear component. And I'll just let you kind of talk through the episodes that you recall specifically. Um, kind of tell us what the case was about, what the FBI's role was and why, and possible outcomes or conclusions. All right. Um, one of the episodes was actually a, a two-part episode, and that's episode 48 and 49. I interviewed retired agent Todd Holsey, uh, who talked about nuclear weapons and the Leo Masseroni espionage case. And, 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 and I should preface all of this by saying there are probably lots and lots of cases that involve WMD that you and me will never know about because many of those cases are classified mm -hmm. and were never, known to, uh, were never made known to the public. The two cases that I have on my podcast, uh, I was able to do case reviews on because they actually were brought to the public. Either there was a, a trial or the people pled, you know, uh, guilty and the information was made public during a sentencing hearing. There was some aspect of these cases where the non-classified information about the cases was made known and therefore we were able to, to discuss it. And so this uh, Leo Master, uh, Masseroni uh, case was one of those. He was actually a theoretical physicist who was formerly employed at the Los uh, Alamos uh, National Laboratory in New Mexico. And he had written at one point a paper or you know, some type of uh, information about, um, well, he had an expertise in, in, in building nuclear weapons. He was involved in the nuclear weapon program. And when he left, the facility, and I don't, I'm not sure if he left on good terms, but he decided that you know maybe he could make a little bit of money by selling his knowledge to a foreign country. And so that's what the case was about. Basically, the FBI learned, and you know, I don't I have to refresh my memory about how they learned about it, but they learned that he was reaching out to a number of foreign countries. And, and offering to sell this information. And so the FBI began a you know, very top secret uh, classified investigation to uh, gather the evidence to prove that he was doing this and also to you know, make that arrest. Now, does the FBI have jurisdiction over all espionage cases, whether it's WMD related or not? Yes. Okay, so you know, it's a federal crime. It's a federal crime, and, and I think that's one of the uh, confusions for people when they think about the CIA. The CIA does not have law enforcement, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Jurisdiction. They don't yeah. have jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. They, they can't arrest anybody. Um, they are actually, you know, our version of, uh, I hate to say it, but spies. You know, they're out there at foreign countries gathering information. It is the FBI's jurisdiction in order to stop other people coming into our country from gathering information, from you know, stealing our intellectual property. And so we have that jurisdiction for both you know, foreign nationals who come into our country and American citizens 
who are involved in any type of espionage and, and you know, the, trying to steal, uh, you know, classified materials and data. And so uh, there's a number of restricted uh, data. Uh, everybody knows who, who works in those fields know, know exactly what that is. And so anybody who attempts to, to sell it or to uh, negotiate some type of you know, money for this, uh, for this data, for this material, is breaking the law. And uh, you know, once we find out about it, the FBI is definitely going to go after them. And, and so this particular case, um, they were able to run a sting uh, using an undercover agent. And he ended up being arrested and sentenced to five years in jail. His wife also participated in the, you know, worked with him on trying to sell this restricted data. And she also received a year in prison. So that was episode 148 and 149. I think, you know, your audience who's very interested in WMD um, information. Uh, would would enjoy listening to those two, uh, part one and part two of that episode. Well, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. Um, what's interesting about the Los Alamos National Laboratory for the listeners is that this is the laboratory where the Manhattan Project um, uh, was centralized during the, the World War II. This is where nuclear weapons were first developed, and it remains one of the three nuclear weapons laboratories um, supporting the U.S. nuclear weapons program. So employees who work at these laboratories um, have to undergo a lot of um, psychological testing. They also um, have to get their clearance, basically, and access to what we call restricted data, which is nuclear weapons data. So that was really interesting. So one other thing that, I, that you do that I think is fascinating, um, there's a new show called FBI. Um, put out by the same folks that um, produce Law and & Order. And you, in your blog, are reviewing each of the episodes. And I'm curious, um, you know, how, how that's going, what are your thoughts on the show, and how are they doing overall? Overall, I think they're doing great. Uh, because I have to understand, as a fiction you know, author myself, I have to understand that the story comes first. I mean, that's really the purpose is to make something that's entertaining and, you know, that the action moves quickly and that people are able to, you know, get engaged with. And so that comes first. And I think they're doing a great job of promoting the FBI. They're almost like a, you know, a free advertising agency that every day highlights the great things that the FBI does. But they have issues every single show. <laughs> And I, I tell people, look, if you're just watching this to be entertained, don't read my blog. Because <laughs> I'm here to educate. And, you know, I, I actually, in, in last week's episode, I actually started it off by saying, look, I'm not here to suck the fun out of this episode. <laughs> but, but, and they, they had a, a number of issues. That was one of the very few episodes that I thought was just implausible. And it, it had the main character acting as a part of the security of a foreign national. And, and uh, yeah, I watched that episode. Yeah, that's just something the FBI doesn't do. So I had to give them, you know, some bad demerits on, on, on that one. But most of the time they, they do pretty good. And, and the things that, you know, I got to smack their hand on, 
you know, I know that they're doing because, you know, they got less than an hour to showcase an entire episode mm -hmm. or an entire investigation that could normally take months, if not years. And, you know, they got to do it in 44 minutes. And so, yes. but, but, so what I'm doing is not necessarily saying they got it wrong because some of the things they did were intentional. But what I'm trying to do is, for instance, if there is somebody who's going to write a book about the FBI or somebody who's thinking about joining the FBI, I at least want them to know what really happens so that they can still enjoy the, you know, the drama of the show, but still have a good foundation as to how the FBI really would operate in that particular situation. So what's interesting, and I, I don't want to spoil the episode, but you said that there was an FBI agent on the detail of a foreign national. And, and having watched the episode, I know that they needed a reason for this particular agent to be around the foreign national so that they could have the scenes that they had. And so that was probably the reason behind the decision they made. But um, yeah, sometimes, you know, we do so at the expense of fact. Right. Um, <laughs> and and you know, they had an episode too that involved weapons of mass destruction. Do you remember that one? Was it the chemical one? Yes, 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 yeah. yeah. I can't remember how I felt about it. How did you, uh, do you remember that episode? Oh yeah, they did a lot of things that were wrong because they tied it in also with the murder on the facility and um, so it, but they're all at interesting. Least, they're at, all least entertaining. They use, at least they use a chemical agent. It really would have driven, driven me crazy if they'd used a biological agent and had people falling down in the middle of the street. Oh, was, but they've had those episodes too. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I kind of cringe and I kind of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was the one me. where they, they contaminated the food trucks or something like that. Yeah. They've had yeah, a, yeah. That they've doesn't had happen a, that quickly, people. No. They, yeah, they've had a number of those episodes too, but... <laughs> Well, well it is what it is. Show. It's 44 minutes and they do a pretty good job. I find it an entertaining show. Um, I, f I find that in addition to the issues that we've raised, that the evidence is all kind of placed very conveniently. But again, they only have 45 minutes to kind of tell the story. So you can't really expect much more. Right. Um, so, so of course, you're doing all of this in support of your new nonfiction book, yes. which is called <laughs> FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. And I'm an armchair detective. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm so excited about that. Actually, as I was doing the podcast, I didn't start off thinking I was going to write this book because I'm, I'm a crime novelist. But as I was doing the podcast, uh, many of the agents and I would say something like, yeah, it's not how they have it on TV or, oh, that's not, you know, that's not how the movie showed it. Uh, and on my 50th episode, I did, you know, 10 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. And then on my 100th episode, I did the same thing, 10 more cliches and misconceptions about the FBI. And then it hit me, this is a book. I got 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. Why don't I take my uh, list of cliches, my reality check, and expand it into a book? And so the book now takes breaks down each one of those 20 cliches and misconceptions. It brings the facts. Uh, it, it brings um, some you know quotes from the FBI website, quotes from the agents that I've interviewed who have expertise in that particular area. And then I also 
review a movie, TV show, or book that may have covered that uh, particular violation. For instance, the first cliche that I use in the book is that FBI profilers are actively hunting serial killers. And everybody has you know, their books and their TV shows where the profiler is chasing a serial killer down an, an alley. And the, reality, <laughs> yeah, and the reality is profilers are consultants. I mean, they do most of their work in their office over the phone, helping the investigators, whether they, whether they be agents or police detectives all over the country, all over the world, help them try to get an understanding of who's behind an unsolved investigation, you know, whether it be serial killing or murder or, or organ, it could be anything, it could be a bank robbery and they're consultants. And so very rarely do they get to leave their, their office. And so I talk about that. And then the number of FBI profilers that I've interviewed, I have quotes from then. And then of course, you know, the movie and, uh, and the book that I must have reviewed for that uh, cliche. Can you guess? It is. Is it Silence of the Lamb? You got that right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so then I, re I, I, I review that. So each chapter uh, follows that same pattern. And again, I have 20 of these. And, you know, I'm really excited uh, about the book. I'm hoping that it becomes the book, the number one book that anybody who reads, writes, or watches FBI crime dramas, or anybody who is thinking about joining the FBI. This is the go-to book for them to get a full understanding of who the FBI is and what the FBI does. And when does it come out? Well, I have to keep saying that it's coming out in June. Hopefully it's coming out at the end of June. The reason that I can't give a, a clear date on this is that all books written by FBI agents have to be cleared and authorized for release by the FBI pre-publication unit. And so that book, my book has been there for almost two months now, uh, going through the different uh, units and divisions in the FBI for clearance. I'm pretty sure I don't have anything sensitive in there, but I'm waiting to get the word back that I can release the book. And so, um, you know, everything's, I'm, I'm working, still working with copy editors and, um, you know, my, my beta team and my uh, advanced readers to get everything just polished and ready to go. But, you know, when I'll be able to release that, uh, it, it really all depends on when I get authorization from the FBI. But I'm, I'm hoping that the book will be out at the, at the end of June. Everything else is ready to go. So if listeners just can't wait for it to come out, I assume they can go listen to your podcast episodes. Was it 50 and 100? That's correct. Now okay. I've, I've changed, uh, I've added and I've consolidated some of those cliches and I've added new ones. So uh, one of the things that they can also do is uh, if you join my reader team, uh, if you go to my website, if you join my reader team, you know, I will give you the, what I call my FBI reality checklist, which is a list of the 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI that are going to be in the book. So you'll have the exact ones that are in the book with a little bit of information that explains why, you know, that's a cliche and, and what the reality is. And so anybody listening, if you, you know, are 
waiting for the book. Uh, and in the meantime, you can get that reality checklist. And where can they get that? What is your website? It's jerrywilliams.com. And Jerry is J-E-R-R-I williams.com. And, uh, you know, there'll either be a pop-up on the homepage or there'll be, uh, there's actually on the sidebar and the homepage. Just, you know, there's lots of places where you can enter your email and, and get that uh, and join my reader team. My reader team is a lot of fun. It's just once a month I send out an email where I, you know, review crime fiction and crime novels and, you know, keep everybody up to date on the FBI uh, and, and what's happening uh, in the entertainment area. I don't do news. I don't do politics. I'm totally nonpartisan. But if you want to know what's happening with books, TV, and movies about the FBI, my reader team and my monthly reader team email is the place to be. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.